in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Hello, everybody. This is Rob Kane. Welcome to Ancient Rome Refocused. The title of this podcast is Time Travel is Easy, History is Hard. In the 60s when I was a kid, I sat in front of the TV watching the Saturday night movie Now, those of you on a certain age may not remember that there was not a lot of choice of cable stations at that time. Uh, You had three choices, ABC, NBC, or CBS. The movie that night was Ben-Hur, starring Charlton Heston. Ben-Hur was a prominent Jewish merchant who was uh, sold into slavery as a galley slave and is lucky enough to save a Roman commander's life uh, during a sea battle. Quintus Arius is so overwhelmed by Ben-Hur's resolve to live that he adopts him as his son out of gratitude. Now, adoption like this was not unusual in patrician families, by the way. High death rate at birth and the dangers of living, well, adoption kind of made up for the shortages of heirs. The Roman commander was played by Jack Hawkins. We keep you alive to serve this ship, so row well and live. And the movie is based on the 1880 novel by Lou Wallace. You have to read this book once in your life, and then see the movie as a treat. Ben-Hur the movie premiered in 1959 and won 11 Academy Awards. I remember sitting in front of the TV, totally enthralled as the scene of the Roman triumph played out. Soldiers marched down the Via Triumphalis to the sound of music. Crowds pressed forward, waving and shouting their praise. Now, a triumph is headed by magistrates followed by trumpeteers with carts filled with the spoils of war, and then white bulls are pulled through the streets on their way to sacrifice, and the arms and insignias of the conquered enemy are carted on wagons so that the public may view that the victory is real. Now remember, this is staged propaganda, allowing you as the public to spit, throw things, and shout out vile insults. Next comes the lictors, dispensers of justice. Lictors, uh are usually a person carrying a, a package of, of rods with an axe shoved in, and, and it's all tied together. It's a symbol of power, uh, but it did have a purpose. The rods could be used to beat people and the axe to carry out capital punishment. Following them was the imperator, the victorious general. Now, imperator means to rule, to govern, and he usually in the triumph he is uh, rides on a chariot and is pulled by horses and just after that his sons follow in a, pl- a place of honor and then the officers that support his victory and then possibly after that the troops that helped in the victory now in the movie Arius had defeated the Macedonian pirates and he rides in a chariot in front of his troops with Judah by his side well after all Judah pulled him out of the water and prevented him from committing suicide Judah deserved a place of honor as far as the Roman commander was concerned. Now, I wasn't more than 10 years old at the time, and 
Without taking my eyes off the TV, I, I said to my brother, who I knew was on the couch and behind me, Do you think it was like that? And I still remembered what he said. I think it was better. I knew at that moment if my brother had a time machine, he would have gone back just so he could have seen for himself. In this episode, I want to accept without question that time travel is possible. I know you, you thought you downloaded a podcast on ancient Rome. You have, and you are in the right place. But for the purpose of argument and for the purpose of studying the past, we are going to put aside the problems of physics and the issues of screwing with the space-time continuum. By the way, I threw that in for you Star Trek fans. And we're going to accept that time travel is possible, at least for the space of time of this podcast. And what if someone offered you the chance to travel back into time? What would you say? Would you go? Think of the money you would make from book sales alone and the movie rights. Think of the fame. I can already see the title of your book, Real Time in Ancient Rome. It would sell millions. It would be on top of the bestseller list for years. Okay, you need more information. Okay, here it is. My contacts from the laboratory have told me the following. The journey will be for two years. You can't take anything with you except a tunic, sandals, and a bag of coins. And the return trip is set in stone. You are there for two years. There will be no rescue operation, and there is no panic button. To my knowledge, you're going to be dropped through a miniature black hole. Still want to volunteer? Now, wait a minute. I can guess the kind of emails that I'm going to get, besides the accusation that I'm crazy because time travel is an impossibility. But we were only talking the probability, weren't we not? I know someone out there is going to send me an email that asks the following question. Why don't you go? What's wrong with you? Now, if you want to know if I would do it, here's my answer. No. No, are you kidding? Not in a million years. Do you think I'm out of my mind? The following are seven reasons to turn down traveling to ancient Rome. Here they come. You ready? Reason one. Medicine was lousy in ancient Rome. As a time traveler, you better be in good health. Well, for one thing, I wear glasses. The optics of grinding glass to cure vision problems is basically high technology to the Romans. In fact, it's, it was high technology just a few hundred years ago. It is something that would mark you as different, and being a time traveler, you, you really want to blend in. As silly as it sounds, wearing glasses could get you killed. So, send someone with 20-20 or wear contacts. But if you lose the lenses, don't expect to run down to your local eyes only to pick up another set. Contacts during Roman times would be like me pulling out an iPod in the 1700s. In regards to medicine, well, I picked up a good time to enter middle age. There are considerable medicines that help prolong life. And what about the minor aches and pains? Are you going to find any aspirin in 51 BC? Ancient Romans believed that diseases were brought on by the disfavor of the gods, and many doctors performed rituals and spells to rid the body of disease. A prayer to the goddess Juno will not cure me of the bone spur on my left foot. I'm not saying that medicine was not existent in the Roman world. Whether we like it or not, war always brings advances in technology and knowledge. Rome was a martial state. Physicians learned by doing, and the first hospitals were built by the military. When you have plenty of sword wounds, you can guess that doctors would get pretty good in curing sword wounds. 
What's more, physicians have, must have gained considerable knowledge of the healing of cuts and the purpose of nerves and the repair of muscles. Practice, in this case, does make perfect. Augustus, the first Roman emperor, established the first army medical corps. Now, Roman doctors knew of arteries and the veins that carried blood, and considering the nature of war and the peacetime interest in gladiatorial games, this is no surprise. The arena would have provided plenty of patience for individual doctors to gain knowledge. Tourniquets, arterial clamps, and ligatures were used to stem flood flow. There was even a wide range of sedatives and painkillers, but take it from a person who's had extensive surgery on his feet and a lot of dental work. Uh, don't take my Percocet, please. So what's the problem, you ask? Well, imagine that you have a book on your kitchen table that contains the sum total of medical knowledge that we know today. Imagine that you're able to eliminate that knowledge from the minds and practices of the medical profession simply by tearing the pages out. Now reach over and rip out 90% of the pages. Do it. Do it now. Now hope, just hope, that you don't get ill at the time you need that knowledge. This is the world you'll live in for the next two years. A sword cut a doctor may be able to help you with, but suffer from epileptic fits and you're entering the realm of the gods. And you have another problem. Do you have enough money to get the medical care that you need? You're not going to be very rich back in ancient Rome. And the problem really doesn't change today either. The best medical care goes to the people with the most money. How much sister sigh do you have in your pocket? Do you still want to go back to ancient Rome? Reason 2. Everyday life was dangerous. As a time traveler, you better take a gun. Oops, sorry, the space-time continuum and not allowed. Well, a good time traveler better know how to use a sword anyway, and... Wait a minute. When's the last time you practiced using a sword and shield? Well, you're going to need it. In 51 BC, it was not unusual to have to flee your city once in a while from the threat of invading armies. The price of having your city sacked is your family will be sold off and your women raped. Politics was for keeps in ancient times. Get on the wrong side and your town was surrounded. The army pounded down your front gate. Then soldiers went methodically from house to house, taking your possessions, uh, if they had time, raping your wife and daughter, then selling you and your family into slavery. If you want to appreciate the politics we have in the U.S. today, tell me the last time your house was burned down because the opposing party won the election. But that's just the United States. I don't want to trivialize this. It's still going on. Cities are being burned to the ground. Populations decimated. Cities have been sacked in ancient times, and they have been sacked in modern times. Another word for sacked is the word raised. And I can come up with some modern equivalents for that act. And I don't even have to leave the 20th or the 21st century. While in ancient history Xerxes made an example of Aridius, what did the Japanese do to Shanghai? The Carthaginians raised Corinth, and Dresden was firebombed. The Romans destroyed Carthage, utterly, to the point of tearing down its walls and salting the earth around it so farming could not take place. The U.S. dropped an atomic bomb in Hiroshima. The Germans laid siege to Stalingrad, literally starving the inhabitants. And what did the Russians do to Berlin in retribution? 
I believe there are many people in Serbia and Bosnia that have experienced the threat of annihilation and have escaped a burning city or a burning house in the night. Yes, modern life is dangerous. But, you know, you still remember Hiroshima. You remember Dresden, Berlin, and Stalingrad. And many of these cities have boomed in the post-war economy. But what we really know of Carthage, except what the victors have written about them or chose to tell us, the memories are Roman memories and are devoid of detail. Have your city sacked, and if anything is left, human or treasure, it will be cataloged and shipped to Rome. Life was dangerous, and there was profit in destroying the next town. At that time, gangs ruled the streets, and one didn't have a police force to settle disputes or to try to protect you, at least not till the time of Augustus. If you had a grief with your neighbor, you grabbed whatever weapon at hand, and you went at it. Yes, yes, there were courts, but courts took money, and juries were only for rich people who could afford the bribes. A common citizen in 51 BC had to settle disputes on their own. Getting someone to court only occurred if you were able to capture that person and get him through the door. When is the last time you captured someone? And the mob. The mob was feared in Rome, barely controlled by the promise of free food and games. Attempts were made to control the uncontrollable. Places like cafes, inns, and taverns had restrictions placed in them under the Republic and several emperors. The average life expectancy was 20 to 30 years. This is considered optimistic. Reason 3. Food was terrible and limited in variety. As a time traveler, you better have a Big Mac before you leave, because it's the last one you're going to get for quite a long time. What's more, as a time traveler, you better have a cast iron stomach. Do you think you'll be attending some great Roman banquet every day? Not likely. Your diet will be the same day in and day out. You'll not be able to afford meat. Don't expect to be eating bread all the time. It was expensive back then. As a time traveler, you got a problem. In two years, you're going to lose a lot of weight, and considering the weight problems of those living today, this might be a good thing. Yes, nutrition is an issue. Fruit and vegetables can provide you with the required vitamins. The question is, what fruits and vegetables can you get and what existed at that time? Don't expect that food will always be available in quantity. Famine was a common problem. People lived from season to season, and keeping food for later was limited. There was no such thing as refrigeration. Those bringing food to market farmed on a small scale. And don't even bother to ask what fertilizers they were using. You don't want to know. Reason 4. Hygiene was poor. As a time traveler, you better take a good long bath before you leave because it might be the last one you're going to get for quite a while. In the morning, expect to wash your face in a pail of water. That is, if you have some water by your bed. Expect to wash your face in the same pail of water, unless you're prepared to lug it two blocks to the fountain, or you go to the window and throw it out, or you go to the railing and, and, draw, and pour it out onto the street. If you take a piss, and then wash your hands, the next time you wash your hands, you're dipping your hands in the pail of water that you placed your germs. Of course, you can solve this by making sure that you always have fresh water, but you're probably going to have to 
lug the bucket a couple of blocks to get it. Now here's a question. Where did you piss? And where did you dispose of that? And where do you think everyone else is disposing their waste? Do you see where I'm going with this? Well then, go buy a slave. If you're tired of lugging a pail of water, go hire the lowest form of human life at that time, the water carrier. Water is 8.3 quarters pounds per gallon. Imagine having to do that all day up and down the stairs. Did the streets stink? Of course. Did people smell? More than likely. In fact, a certain amount of aroma was probably acceptable due to the times. In other words, if you can stand my smell, I will certainly stand yours. Was lice common? Of course it was. How often do you think the average Roman washed his or her clothes? The bass, <coughs> the average payment to enter the bass was one quarter ass. Ass was a payment, uh, a coinage. The payment of an ass is pretty much affordable, even to the poor. Bath buildings comprised a suite of hot, warm, and cold pools for you to remove the grime of the day. These places even contain swimming pools and gymnasiums. This all sounds pretty good, right? Sort of like a high-priced health club? Well, what do health clubs cost nowadays? 350 a year? Maybe 600 I'm sure that Roman bass varied in size and facilities by the strength of the clientele, don't most places. Do you think that the common laborer could afford to hit the bass every day? If human nature has not changed in a couple of thousand years, and if an ass stands between you and eating, well, the bath can wait. What kind of soap did they use? Was there soap at all? Oh, and the answer is no. I mean, they used oil to remove soil from their skin. Try it. Get your hands dirty, then rub your hands with the olive oil and see if it doesn't. See if it breaks up the dirt. How did they remove the muck? Uh, with a sturgeon. It's kind of like a dull blade. Most likely, it was scraped off the skin. And usually, they had a uh, slave or a buddy or a friend or a relative to do it for them. I can imagine the aroma afterwards was not anything near Dow Soap or Irish Spring. How were clothes cleaned back then? Vats of sulfur in human urine. You heard me. Human urine. It was used as a form of bleach. I don't expect the Time Travel Committee is going to send you back with a lot of money with the price of gold nowadays. You're going to have to rely on your wits to get by. Unless you can carry enough coinage, you're going to be living in the lower edge of society. Washing is a matter of logistics. How close is the nearest fountain? There'll be no powder room on every floor. Running water in a sink will be hard to find. Baths are located how many feet away? Fountains are how far down the road? Rivers are how close to your doorstep? You're going to smell. Face it. Enjoy the aroma. Reason 5. The entertainment was different. Imagine a world that there are no movies, no TV, no iPod. No computer, no webcasts, no podcasts, no radio. In this time, you're going to have to rely on books, plays, and people for your entertainment. And you better be able to read Latin and understand it. Do you like a good wrestling match? More than likely, that's available. There was even a form of dice called bones. And you could listen to music. Various types of instruments existed at the time. Drums, cymbals, and string instruments. People were not too different. They danced and sang songs even back then. A pastime of the Romans was horse racing. You could go for a play. There were comedies and tragedies on various subjects. The plot lines are vaguely familiar. Boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy buys girl, boy kidnaps girl from her father. Boy raises money to get the attention of his favorite prostitute. Oh, don't raise an eyebrow to that last one. 
Remember the 1983 movie Risky Business with Tom Cruise? Well, I could just see it. Throw everyone into a toga, add a slave to deliver key comedic lines, and periculos negotium, uh, P-E-R-C-U-L-O-S space N-E-G-O-T-I-U-M, periculos negotium, risky business in English, uh, would probably do a reasonable business for a Greek and Roman audience in 51 BC. So far, it sounds pretty good, right? I mean, game of dice, musical instruments, plays, not too different from now. But it is different. And the biggest difference is what people considered entertainment at that time, and it was called gladiatorial game. Do you want to go to a gladiatorial game? It's just like football, right? Tell me the last football game you went to where the victims in the arena were disemboweled, eaten, burned, and drowned in wholesale battles. Victims were staked to crosses and wrapped with cloth, immersed in oil and pitch, and then lit up like a torch. I mean, watching violent movies is one thing. Watching stage violence and death where the victims are real is another. How strong is your stomach anyway? And what's more, how long will it be until you develop a taste for the carnage? Don't tell me you don't have a taste for it. I mean, for the violence of the arena. I see hints of it in modern day. Look at the way cars slow down on highways during an accident. I mean, there's no reason for them to slow down, but they do. They always do. And that's because... Somebody decided to slow down to see what carnage they could see. And another thing. Look at the movies that are in Hollywood. There seems to be a propensity of violent films. Let me tell you a story. St. Augustine writes of a friend called Alpheus who went to Rome to study law. He was asked by some friends to join them at a gladiatorial game. He made his opinion known of what he thought of such a spectacle. Augustine quotes him as saying, If you drag my body to that place and sit me down there, do not imagine you can turn my mind and my eyes to that spectacle. I shall be as one not there, and so I shall overcome both you and the game. End of quote. Well, it did not work out that way. Alpheus was dragged to a gladiatorial game by his friends, and the results are recorded by Augustine. Quote, When they arrived and found seats where they could, the entire place seethed with the most monstrous delight in the cruelty. He kept his eyes shut and forbade his mind to think about such fearful evils, with that he block his ears as well. A man fell in combat. A great roar from the entire crowd struck Alpheus with such vehemence that he was overcome by curiosity. Supposing himself strong enough to despise whatever he saw and to conquer it, he opened his eyes. He was struck in the soul by a wound graver than the gladiator in his body whose fall had caused the roar. As soon as he saw the blood, he had once drank in savagery in the murderous contest and was inebriated by the blood-thirsty pleasure. He was not the same person who had come in, but just one of the crowd which he joined, and a true member of the group that had brought him. He looked, he yelled, he was on fire, he took the madness with him so that it urged him to return, not only with those by whom he had originally been drawn there, but even more than them, he took others with him.
End of quote. If Alpheus could not hold out against the temptations of the arena, how do you think you're going to do? Oh, tempora, amores, senatus haequidit, con full cognoscit, haec estorpissima sentina. Reason six, you don't speak the language. As a time traveler, I hope you paid attention in Catholic school or took classical studies while you were in college. There's nothing lonelier than being in another country and not knowing the language. Conversation with friends may be your only entertainment. Wait, you're a time traveler with bad Latin. You can scratch the idea of having long and interesting conversation with friends. You, my friend, are alone. Latin has been called a dead language and uh, used mostly by the church and the scientific community to classify data. Today, the only people that I think could carry on a conversation in the language is possibly a classical scholar or a priest. But you know, if you drop these two guys into downtown Rome, ancient downtown Rome, I think they'd be hard-pressed to comprehend what, what was being said to them. How a language is spoken over the years changes. Even modern languages are spoken differently in the same country where people are divided by regions and geography. But people overcome this and survive because... The regional speakers help the non-regional speakers get past the obstacles. Even a Cambridge graduate in England knows a little cockney. Where are you going to find someone that lived in 51 BC to teach you how to ask for directions in the form and the proper inflection? His way of saying the word foreign may be slightly different than your neighborhood classical scholar. What's more? What kind of Latin is he speaking? The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. It seems there was a high Latin spoken by the noble elite called patricians and street Latin spoken by the common people called plebeians. Anyway, how can we be sure that the Latin spoken today by our select few, the, the church and classical scholars, is even comparable to the language spoken in 51 BC. You're taking a risk. In 1974, I was in high school, and we had an exchange student from Yorkshire, England. She met me in the hall, and she asked me a question. For the life of me, I could not understand her. She was speaking English, no, no question of it, but I was used to hearing the words in another way. She repeated again and again, and finally I had to say to her, I, I really don't understand. Now, she had a hurt look on her face, and I regretted hurting her feelings, but it was the truth. I'm not saying that I didn't understand her the rest of the time, but at that particular moment, I could not make out the words. What did Winston Churchill say? The United States and Great Britain are two nations divided by a common language. Now, a couple of hundred years, an ocean made that division, so... How would our understanding of Latin change with a couple of thousand years to divide us? You better use your two years in Rome to your best advantage. Make sure you don't get into trouble. Don't speak much at first. Ask for little things like food and water. Try out a word here or there. Pretend to be mute so no one talks to you. Listen very carefully to conversations until you can master it on your own. Reason 7. You will be seduced by the slavery that you see around you. 
I couldn't get a recording of an actual slave auction. Uh, I couldn't even find one in a uh, clip from a movie somewhere. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but I couldn't find one. So here's here's a recording of an auction, just to put you in the mood. As a time traveler, I hope you're able to set aside your morals and compassion until you get back. All the 20th century morals of fair play and do unto others as they would do unto you, you better put on hold. Spend two years in Rome and slavery will become a part of you. You will accept it as the natural state of things. Well, heck, you already do. In case you don't know it, you live in an age of cheap goods being provided by immigrant labor. Gym shoes and jeans made in Chinese sweatshops flood our markets. Well, I can hear you say, well, yes, but they, they're paid for the work. It's not the same thing. Well, in ancient Rome, some people sold themselves into slavery just to eat, to be clothed, to have a chance to live another day. Is this much different than having to accept a wage that is barely enough to feed yourself or your family? Is economic slavery any worse than human slavery? Is the slavery of women in the sex trade any different than the slavery of ancient times? Why is it that the news reports always seem to have something about people being held against their will for the purpose of labor? And the word labor means many things. How about political Chinese prisoners laboring in factories under a life sentence? How about Asian women laboring behind high fences on an island to make high-priced athletic shoes? Or women imported into the United States and held captive in an apartment? That was a recent TV news report. What were they being held captive for? Don't fool yourself. Slavery is out there. And yes, there are laws against it. But in certain forms, it seems to be tolerated. And in ancient Rome, slavery is everywhere. It's not hidden behind closed doors or in some obscure country or behind an ideology or, or legal hocus-pocus. Slaves are in the brothels, they work in the shops, they labor in the fields. Everything you touch has the smell of slavery attached to it. Slaves sweep up the dung in the streets. They wait on customers. They perform household chores. They dig out ore from the mines. It takes eight people to run a proper household in ancient Rome. What self-respecting Roman could possibly get along without a cook, cook assistant, washerwoman, manservant, sewing woman, lady's maid, butler, or secretary? One time in the Senate, it was proposed that all slaves should wear yellow tunics to identify themselves. It was voted down. The Roman citizens feared that slaves, if they knew how, how much they outnumbered the free citizens, that they would revolt and try to gain their freedom. So let's try to keep the numbers secret. If you have moral objections to slavery, you're going to have to overcome them. Because slaves exist in that world because they were needed. Oh, man, why build machines? Why have innovation and mechanics when muscles, legs, and arms are in quantity for you to exploit? At the time, slaves were considered talking tools. In fact, that's what they were called. The slavery of ancient Rome was unusual, though. Slaves could possibly earn money for themselves, possibly buy their freedom, and masters could release them from bondage under the laws of manumission. Of course, you were called a freedman, 
and you were expected to keep your loyalty to your former master, a form of slavery in itself. A freed man was recorded to have over 4,000 slaves attributed to his household when he died. Imagine you start your life as a slave, free yourself through your own innovation and the generosity of your master, and then become so successful you end your life with 4,000 lives dedicated to your comfort. There's success for ya! This man was not only seduced, but adopted it as a way of life. So how strong are you? Now, you might have moral objections to slavery. I, I know what you're going to do. You're going to buy slaves and free them, right? As a time traveler, I don't think you're going to have a lot of money to spend. Slaves cost anywhere between 500 to 1,500 denarii. And they could be more, depending upon if they have a talent. Oh, you like that pretty girl on the block, the one with the pouty lips. You must save her from her fate. Ah, sorry, she went for 2,000 denarii. Senator Plucus is feeling amorous tonight. No matter, you'll try for the flute player. But the, your money pouch is not heavy enough. Slaves with talent are considered a worthwhile bid. The number goes up. 100, 200, and to your amazement, the final bid is 4,000 denarii. Well, Romans love their music. So let's say you did have the 4,000 denarii and you bought the young flute player. He is a boy named Flaccus. You take him to the street, you free him under the rules of manumission, and he, he is amazed, and the boy runs down the street alive, jumping and dancing like a small dog released from a collar to run free in the field. Good job. Strike a blow for 21st century morality. But two weeks later, you see the boy again. He's dirty and has a welt under one eye. He tried to make money playing his flute on the street corner, but how much could he really make? He made a few coppers at most, if that. At least a slave would have a place to sleep, clothes, and, a f and food. His flute playing would have an audience whenever you called him to perform. And when he sees you, he drops at your feet exhausted. He begs you, to be, for, you for him to become your slave again. He begs you for you not to send him away. What does your 21st century morality say now? I think most of you would take him back. Guess what? You now own a slave. Like Alpheus in the arena, you've been seduced by 51 BC. Now that I tried to talk you out of it, I'm going to ask you a question. Would you go anyway? Let's say for a moment that I am actually taking applications for the journey. Let's say for just a moment that this podcast is an elaborate ruse or a cover to find someone in the world to volunteer. After all, if most people were offered the opportunity, they'd probably say that you were out of your mind. So let's say for a moment that the offer is real. Would you take the trip? It's two years in 51 BC that I'm talking about. Send me your thoughts. I want to know your qualifications. What special skills do you have? And more importantly, are you willing to take the risk? Give me your top seven reasons for going. I'm absolutely serious. Go to my blog site at http colon backslash backslash ancientromanyfocus.org. Remember, this is one word. 
And if you want to send me an email, the address is rob at ancientromerefocused.org. While you're thinking about it, let's listen to some music. When I come back, I'd like to recommend a book that should help you make your decision. Any good time traveler should study his time period before he departs. Now, I could recommend some good history books, but the best kind would be a good case study. Case studies are recorded events, something that someone has gone through before, and the details on what has learned is set down to provide insight for others who might find themselves in the same situation. Considering that there are no good time travel case studies, we're going to have to rely on fiction. The person lucky enough to be chosen for this time travel assignment, I'd like to recommend this book. It is called A.D. 62 Pompeii by Rebecca East. If you can't get it at your local bookstore, then try Amazon.com. The heroine is a woman named Miranda. She is a graduate of classical archaeology at Harvard and a bit of a loner. 
She is recruited by a group of researchers to make a journey, to make a journey back into time. Now, how traveling into the past is accomplished is never fully explained. Why she is chosen has to do with her size, which in the book she describes as small in stature, and the fact that she studied classical archaeology and speaks Latin is a big plus. She is dropped, literally dropped, through time and winds up in the sea to be fished out by a local sailing vessel. She is the catch, excuse the pun, for the poor family of fishermen and is immediately sold into slavery. This is where she comes into the family of Marcus Tullius, who lives in Pompeii. She is the newest member of the family and is immediately put to work scrubbing floors. The book is an intimate, detailed account of her adventures, and she is witness to the inner workings of the family and their relationship with their slaves. Storytelling is big in this book, and the time traveler discovers quickly that she has a talent for it. The master and his family are soon entertained by stories drawn from Han Christian Andersen, Shakespeare, and the poems of Walt Whitman. In Rome, if you were a slave, it was always best if you had a talent. And how easy it is to be a storyteller when you can draw on tales across the centuries. The following is a point in the book where Miranda figures out how to make her way as a slave. After the first story, Tule began to seek me out, asking for more stories, asking me what I was doing. It was good practice for me. I would hear a more cultured accent from family members than from slaves. I asked her to correct me when I made mistakes in pronunciation. I still made many mistakes. It seemed to make her feel useful to do that. In evenings, my flute songs became a regular routine in the slave quarters. I gave my songs Latin names so that they could request their favorite ones over and over. I knew that by making music and telling stories, I called attention to myself, but I wasn't certain that was safe. But I couldn't continue to be as passive as I was the first few days, or I would never do anything here except scrub floors. I wouldn't last long if I had to do such hard work all the time. I was tired of being a person of no value and of doing the most menial work in the house. Perhaps becoming a storyteller would provide me with a more comfortable identity. Being able to amuse and educate would increase my value as a member of the household. I enjoyed having an appreciative audience. Like many apprentice teachers, I had discovered that the lure of a captive audience was one of the things that made me love to teach. If I was going to survive here, I needed to become a part of their world. I tried not to do anything that would be considered misbehavior. However, once in a while, when I couldn't sleep, I walked in the peristyle garden. On nights when the moon was full and the sky was flecked with stars, everything in the garden was touched with silver light, and it was unearthly beautiful. The columns reflected the light, and the white flowers glowed in the dark. They seemed to give off a more potent perfume in the night air. Often I saw a lamp burning in the master's private study. I wondered why he was up so late. Perhaps he was a reader, I thought. Was he also a lover of poetry? If you found love and true happiness in 62 AD, would you stay? Think about what you'd be gaining and what you would be giving up. By the way, there's a little of a mystery behind the book. Rebecca East is her pen name. The writer is a university professor with an excellent website at www.rebeccaeast.com 
Dash-East.com. I try to finish every episode with a quote, and this particular one I was not able to identify with any particular person. I picked it out for its meaning since it kind of like runs along the idea of, of traveling in time to study something that could indeed kill you, or liking something so much that it has dire consequences. And again, forgive my Latin. Quid me nutret me destruet. The translation is as follows. What nourishes me also destroys me. Well, that's the end of our podcast. Next time, we're going to look into the gladiator by the name of Spartacus. If um, the subject of time travel interests you, I suggest you go to my blog site. There's a time traveler survey. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused.